scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. If you'd like to use the blue pew Bible in front of you or behind you, you can find the passage on page 72. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the holy and inerrant word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, now as the word has just gone forth, we do pray for your spirit to accompany it, that by your spirit we might have a greater sense 
of what you are trying to communicate to each and every one of us. May our hearts be soft and willing to hear and to submit. And I pray, Lord, that you be glorified in this moment and that your people might be built up. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's passage is definitely meant to give readers a shock. Because by the way the story of Exodus has been developing, you should be surprised at this blatant act of rebellion. Because you would think that by this point, things have finally turned around for the people of God. I mean, sure, they were slow to accept Moses as God's messenger. Uh, They were slow to trust the Lord to deliver them from Egypt and to provide for them while they were in the wilderness. But they start to come around, especially when God uh, brings them to Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. And then we're told back in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they're committed. All that he speaks, they will do. So chapters 25 all the way to verse 31 are then full of instructions now for building a tabernacle and all of its furnishings. Most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant, which really functioned as the earthly throne of the Lord. God's presence, we're told, would rest on the ark within the tabernacle in the very midst of their camp. So if a community were to be told that God is coming to dwell in a tabernacle in your presence, if God is going to take up residence in the middle of your neighborhood, you would think that that would generate excitement, that that would motivate devotion, which is why chapter 32 starts with such a devastating blow, because the people quickly, suddenly abandon the Lord. They construct an idol, and they start calling it their deliverer. It's quite surprising. But if you think about it, it really shouldn't be that shocking. Because if you read the Bible starting from Genesis, and we're really only in the second book, there's already a pattern being set in place. Because we've seen this before. We've seen this pattern. It is not the first time a people blessed with the very presence and words of God in their midst would suddenly and surprisingly fall into idolatry. Commentators have already noted the similarities between Genesis chapters 1 to 3 and Exodus chapters 25 to ours, to chapter 32. Because here in Exodus, there's really this new creation narrative being told that follows a very similar pattern as back in Genesis. The Lord's tabernacle that's being described in the earlier chapters is really a microcosm of the Garden of Eden. It's a microcosm of God's good creation. It's this mini Eden in the midst of chaos. It's a new garden where you go to to meet God's presence. It's been noted that the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, that phrase occurs exactly seven times in chapters 25 to 31, where God is giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle. 
Um, And so just like in Genesis 1, God here speaks seven times, and in both instances, six creative acts culminate in a seventh-day rest. And the seventh occurrence of the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, is back in chapter 31, verse 12. We looked at that last week. So chapters 25 to 31 here in Exodus is essentially describing a new creation scene with a mini Eden, this tabernacle, and a Sabbath rest. It's Genesis 1 to 2 repeated. And this chapter, our chapter, chapter 32, is basically Genesis chapter 3 all over again. It's a sudden fall. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised. We've seen this before. Well, friends, the point here is that a pattern is being set for us. An example is being established for us. So if we fail to recognize this example, if, especially if we fail to learn from it, we are missing the very point of this passage. There's this place later on in the New Testament uh, that the Apostle Paul is writing his uh, first letter to the Corinthians where he references our very passage. And he says that this story was written in order to serve as an example for us. So in 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, listen to verses 6 to 7. Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's from our text. That's from verse 6. He's referencing our passage, and he's saying this is an example for us to learn from. Paul's saying that this episode with the golden calf took place to serve as an example for God's people of what not to desire. Learn from this text not to desire evil as the Israelites did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, I know we have to be very careful that we don't just simply moralize the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament is not here for us to simply draw out little moral lessons to apply to our daily lives. I I know we need to read any Old Testament story in light of the context of the larger biblical story that always finds its storyline and its fulfillment in the New Testament, especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to do my best to help you do just that, to, to read this text in light of Christ. But friends, if the New Testament is actually telling us to read an Old Testament story as an example of what not to desire and what not to do, well, then it's totally appropriate to ask what lesson should we be pulling away from this, from this example that we have in this story. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to look at some lessons here. Oh, I got four lessons for us to consider. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. It's listed there. We're still going to try to understand all of these lessons in light of the gospel of Christ. But nonetheless, there are some examples being set and some lessons to learn. So let's look at them. The first lesson is this. Human sin runs deep. Human sin runs deep. That becomes painfully obvious when we consider what's motivating these Israelites here. 
We're going to see that sin has layers to it, and you really need to peel back these layers to understand just how deep it runs. And so for these Israelites, we see them turning to Aaron. They turn to Moses' brother to make for them a God to go before them. Just like the Lord had gone before them through the wilderness, they want a God to do that for them because uh, they've been camped out at Mount Sinai for almost 40 days. And Moses had gone up to the mountain, and they don't know where he is now. He's been gone much longer than they expected, and they want to get going. They want to get to the promised land. And so they ask Aaron to make us gods who shall go before us. Now, I think there are at least three layers of sin that can be observed here. Three, Three layers. Sin is disobeying God, distrusting God, and defying God. We'll look at each. First, sin is disobeying God. It's a violation of his revealed will. The Israelites here broke specifically commandments one and two. They ask Aaron to make them God's plural. Now, I know it's confusing since he only made one calf, and yet in verse 4, they do say, These, plural, are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So apparently they're at least open to worshiping more than one God. Maybe they're going to build some more calves. Which, of course, by doing this, it is a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But you know, they were also disobeying the second commandment, which forbade them from making a carved image of Yahweh, the Lord. So not only must they worship the right God, they must worship him in the right way. And that meant you can't use images of God in your worship of God. That's why there was an intentional blank space between the two cherubim that were resting on top of the Ark of the Covenant There was no carved image or statue sitting right between the cherubim on top of the ark, the throne seat of God. No, it was just a blank space. But the Israelites didn't want to direct their worship towards a blank space. They wanted to see their gods. And so they built a calf. Now, you have to understand, they didn't actually think the golden calf was literally their God. They really saw it as a representation of the Lord. They still wanted to worship Yahweh. They wanted to be Yahweh worshipers, but they were more comfortable if he were visible. They were more comfortable if they could just see him whenever they wanted to. And so that leads to the second layer of sin. Sin is not just disobeying a law. Sin is distrusting God. It's more than just a behavioral issue. It is a heart issue. So look at the Israelites. They were in a panic. As we said, Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive more instructions about building a tabernacle, a meeting place with God. But it's been almost 40 days, and they hadn't seen him or heard from him since. And so they're worried. Their sole point of contact with God apparently seems to be lost. And yet they're still expected to believe. They're still expected to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. That Moses, God's prophet priest, also knows what he's doing. But man, it is hard to trust. It's much easier and much more comfortable to take matters into your own hands. So instead of trusting 
and waiting for God to provide through his servant Moses, the people decide, we're going to build our own meeting place with God. That's what they're doing here. That's what this golden calf is supposed to be. I mean, just think about earlier in the chapters describing the tabernacle and all of its furnishing. Did you notice how much gold was involved, right? Like everything seems to be overlaid with gold in this tabernacle. And so when the people build for themselves a golden calf, they want this golden image to serve the same function as the tabernacle. They were building for themselves a meeting place with God. It's hard to just wait on God. It's hard to trust his timing. It's hard to trust his designs. It's so much easier to trust a God that you can see and you can touch. And let's face it, that means a God that you can manipulate to fit your timing and to fit your designs. So that leads to the third layer. Sin is disobeying. Sin is distrusting. But third, sin is defying, is, is defying God. Sin is defying God. Every time we sin, we are defying God's lordship, his kingship, his sovereignty, and we are setting ourselves up in his place. Again, consider the Israelites. They face the choice to receive the faith as God has revealed, or to reconstruct it as they feel. And all of their actions can be interpreted really as a reconstruction that stands in opposition to what God had revealed in his law. There are some fascinating parallels here. If you look at verse 4, look at verse 4, when the people say, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, that parallels Chapter 20, verse 2, where Yahweh himself says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when Aaron builds an altar before the calf in verse 5, that parallels the bronze altar that is to be placed before the tabernacle of God. When in verse 6, they rise up early the next day to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, that parallels chapter 24. Verses 4 to 5, when Moses does that very same thing, he wakes up early in the morning to offer the exact same type of offerings to confirm the covenant. And then when it says that the people, in verse 6, sat down to eat and drink, well, that parallels what the elders of Israel did back when they ate and drank before God in chapter 24, verse 11. Those who didn't get to experience that meal are now fashioning their own image of God and hosting their own meal. And later, when Moses and Joshua come down from the mountain in verse 18 and they hear the sound of singing, well, that parallels the last time singing was mentioned. That's back in chapter 15, when Moses and the people sang a song of deliverance after crossing the Red Sea. And so essentially, what we see here in chapter 32 is the people's attempt to recreate their entire Exodus experience. The key difference is that instead of receiving the faith as revealed, they are reconstructing a faith that they feel makes the most sense to them. They're defying God, which is really at the heart of all sin. This is what we mean by human sin running deep. Our problem as sinners is not just that we break the law, 
but that we try to remake the law as we see fit. Whenever we struggle with obedience to God's word, it's really a struggle with God's lordship, with his authority to tell us how to live. As sinners, we chafe at someone telling us what to do and how to live our lives. That's what ultimately led the Israelites to fabricate a faith of their own making and to craft a God in their own image. Do you see that this calf is a reflection of their own values and priorities? It says that our God is strong and mighty. That's what a calf is supposed to symbolize. That's what they value. Now, it's not like it's not true, but it fails to capture the full range of God's glory, because no image can do that. That's why there's the second commandment. That's why carved images are forbidden. No created image of God can capture his infinite worth and perfection. To try to do so will inevitably lead to blasphemy. You're going to end up with a false God, with an idol, with a golden calf. The seriousness of their offense, this blasphemy, well, that explains why Moses throws the two stone tablets containing the words of the covenant. He throws them on the ground, breaking them to pieces. Because that illustrates what the people just did. They, had, they broke the covenant. They defied the Lord. They tried to dethrone him. Sure, on the outside, they were bowing to a golden calf, but on the inside, each person had ascended the throne of his or her heart and established a self-rule. According to Scripture, that's really what it means to be a sinner. It means that we don't just struggle with keeping the law. It means we struggle with trusting and submitting to the lawgiver. We have a tendency to reconstruct our faith or even our image of God in order to fit our values and our priorities. That's what sin is, my friends. That's how deep it runs. That's the first lesson that we can learn based on the negative example of the Israelites. Now let's consider the example of God and how he responds to human sin. And let's draw some lessons from that. Here's our second lesson Divine wrath burns hot. Divine wrath burns hot. That's the very language being used in verse 10. While Moses is still on the mountain, God informs him of all that's going down below, and it's shocking to read God's words. Because up to this point, do you remember how the Lord has been calling Israel, my people, these are my people, or this is my firstborn son. But then here in verse 7, he tells Moses, your people, Your people have corrupted themselves. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, then I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so God is threatening to start all over again and and to make Moses into a new Abraham through whom he's going to now make a great nation. God is angry And it says his wrath burns hot against them. Now, I realize how offensive it can be to speak this way about God. Because usually when you picture someone talking about God's wrath, 
you have in your mind some guy on the street wearing a sandwich board that says the world's going to end and he's yelling at everyone to turn or burn. You know, when it comes to methodology, that would be the furthest away from my approach. But when it comes to theology, there's no fundamental difference between what a street preacher says and what I'm saying because we're both affirming what the scriptures say. God's wrath burns hot against sin. That's what the Bible reveals. Now, some people are going to reject this kind of teaching. They're going to deny that God ever gets angry with sinners. They're going to say, no, 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 that's not my God. My my God wouldn't do that. My, My God would never say that. But do you realize they're just describing their golden calf? That's the projection, their, their projection of who God is, of who they want God to be. But it's really not up to creatures to determine who their creator is or what he's like. We are to receive him as he is revealed. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we have a hard time accepting this about God because we're not sure how God is actually revealed in Scripture. Maybe we're not familiar enough with the Bible, and instead we're interpreting his wrath, not according to Scripture, but just according to our own experience of anger and wrath. But the thing is, is that God doesn't get angry in the same way that you and I do. His wrath is different. Our wrath is capricious. Our wrath is cruel. It flares up whenever our ego gets hurt. But God is different. J.I. Packer, He reminds us that God's anger is not, quote, the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger which pagans attributed to their gods. It is not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger which we find among humans, among us. He goes on to explain that God's wrath is really a function of his holiness. He writes this, God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. In other words, wrath is the proper response of an absolutely holy God to the absolute unholiness of human sin. I know you might prefer to worship a God of love who never gets angry, whose wrath doesn't burn hot against sinners, but just consider that you might be worshiping a golden calf and not the God who has been revealed. In fact, I I think it could be reasonably argued that God wouldn't be a loving God if he didn't get angry, that he truly wouldn't be the kind of loving God that you want if he didn't, if his wrath didn't flare up. Because if you saw a blatant evil being perpetrated and causing harm to someone that you love, if you're not angry about that, if you don't feel wrath over that, then I would question if you really love that person. You're anything but loving because love cares enough to be angry with evil. That makes sense to us. We want God to get angry over, over forms of injustice, of racism. We don't want him to get angry about misogyny and violence and terrorism. We want his wrath to burn over these systemic injustices. But then we have to accept that the same God's same wrath burns over our private sins and indiscretions. 
again, to pick and choose a God who gets angry over one sin but not the other just shows that what you're doing is constructing a golden calf. You're not dealing with the God as he is revealed. You are creating a God, an image of God that fits your values and priorities. So yes, yes, God's wrath is burning here in this passage. But friends, that's really not the main point. This episode is not meant to show how mad God can get, but really to show how bad God's people can be. What would have surprised future generations reading this same story here in the book of Exodus is not how angry God could have gotten with previous generations. No, what would have surprised them is how God seemingly changed his mind about what he threatened. He relented. How in the world did Moses get him to do that? That leads us to our third lesson that we can draw from this story, and it should bring you a lot of hope. The third lesson is this, intercessory prayer changes things. Intercessory prayer changes things. If we look in verses 11 to 14, Moses really starts to step into his role as an intercessor, as a mediator. In earlier chapters, he was unsure about himself, right? He was questioning God's call. He was questioning if God could just send someone else instead of him. He was really just looking out for himself. He didn't care all that much for the burdens of his people. But here we see him finally stepping up into that role as a prophet priest who represents the people before God. In fact, he's even starting to sound a lot like God. Notice how in verses 11 to 13, Notice how Moses is reminding God of the very realities that the Lord had been reminding them all along. He's the one who delivered them from bondage to Egypt for the express purpose of spreading the knowledge of his name, the knowledge of himself to all the peoples. You shall know that I am the Lord. That has been the consistent refrain throughout this book. So this is like Moses telling God, God, if that's your purpose for the exodus, for your name to go forth, then don't consume your people who bear your name with your wrath. What then will the nations think? Will the nations still prize your name and your glory if you consume them? And then Moses reminds God of the promises that he made to their forefathers to multiply them into a great nation and to bring them into a promised land. For the sake of your reputation, O Lord, as a promise-keeping God. Verse 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Now, it, it would be a mistake to think that God actually forgot what he had said before. Like he had some kind of senior moment here, and he was just so mad, and he just wasn't thinking straight, and he really needed Moses to remind him of his purposes and promises. No, I, I think the similarity in Moses' words with God's previous words is meant to show us the one who is really changing here isn't God, but it's actually Moses. Moses is maturing into that mediator that he was called to be, like a good priest, He is now interceding for his people. He is praying for his people. He is imploring on behalf of his people. And the Lord listens and relents. Look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
Now, friends, you have to understand, this is not a situation where God needed to be talked down from doing something rash. His anger is not capricious. It's not an infantile anger that flares up, that clouds his judgment. No, God is not being talked down, but he is being talked to wisely and boldly by someone who knows him well enough and knows on what basis to make an appeal. Moses appeals to the very things that God appeals to when he tries to give his own people hope, especially when they're overwhelmed with the depths of their sin and the reality of his wrath. He appeals to God's faithfulness to his own purposes and promises. That's how you talk to God. That's how you implore God. You appeal to his purposes and his promises, and how faithful he is to keep them. That's how you make a request. You implore him to act based on what he says will compel him to action. You try to move his hand based on what he tells you is going to move his hand. So really, it's not a surprise that God listened to Moses when he asked him to relent for the sake of his glory among the nations and for his faithfulness to his own promises. shouldn't shock us. If you've ever really prayed for someone, then you know that every intercessory prayer really is an attempt to move God's hand. You're trying to get God to move, aren't you? When you're praying for someone, you're praying for God to save someone or to heal someone or to change someone, to be merciful to someone. You know, though, that in the end... Even though you are asking God to move, you also know that in the end, you can't change a sovereign God's will. But who knows? Maybe his sovereign will was for your intercessory prayer to be that last straw that unleashes an avalanche of grace. Who knows? What if his will was for your prayer to be that very cause that moves his hand to answer in the life of that person you're praying for? I don't know anyone who really knows how to pray who isn't trying to change things. Moses certainly was. And by God's grace, he did. God relented and he did not consume all the people as he said. But, of course, that doesn't mean that he just put it all in the past and moved on. He didn't let bygones be bygones. As we're going to read on, there were consequences for this rebellion. People died. First off, Moses' anger burned hot. Burned hot just like God's when he finally came down and he saw the idolatry for himself. And so uh, it says in verses 19 to 20, that what he did was he burned the golden calf, he ground it up into a fine powder, he mixed it with water, and he forced everyone to drink it. And then in verses 21 to 24, he confronts his brother. He confronts Aaron, who offers the lamest of excuses. Right? Look at verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Like, completely skipping over the fact where he crafted it himself, right? And then Moses calls all those who are on the Lord's side to come to him. And we're told only the tribe of, of Levi came. 
and he commissions them to kill the guilty. And we're told about 3,000 men died that day. You see, friends, that just goes to show that God, he truly did relent from the disaster that he spoke of because he had said, I was going to kill them all. And Moses' intercessory prayer truly did change things, didn't it? But that doesn't mean that their sins were atoned for. In this episode, the guilty still received their punishment. Sinners were still not pardoned. And that leads to our final lesson. Our final lesson is this. Atonement requires a worthy substitute. Atonement requires a worthy substitute. There must have been some reason here, and it's not revealed to us, but there must be some reason why these 3,000 men particularly died. Perhaps they committed more egregious sins that were summarized for us in that phrase there in verse 25. The people had broken loose. The NIV says they were running wild. The King James says that they were naked. So apparently they were streaking. That's what they were doing. Um, And so whatever they were exactly doing in this case, whatever was happening here, perhaps these 3,000 were guilty of causing greater shame upon the name of the Lord, and they had paid for it it with their own lives. But Moses realizes that the rest of the people are still on the hook. Their sins needed atonement. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, atonement, it's a biblical term. It's a biblical term referring not just to sins being forgiven, but to sinners being pardoned and reconciled to God. The English word carries uh, that idea of being reunified, of being restored at one with God. It's at one mint, atonement. But unholy sinners cannot be restored at one with a holy God if our sins remain unpunished, if justice remains unserved, if God's righteousness has yet to be vindicated. And Moses realizes that in verse 30. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." He goes back up the mountain to go talk to God, and he pleads for the people. And he offers himself as a substitute. He basically says, take me instead, Lord. Spare them, take me. Listen to verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please, blot me out of your book that you have written. If you're not going to forgive them, then blot me out. Now, he's not talking here about eternal salvation. That's not the, the book. Uh, if you're thinking about the, the, uh, the, the book that you, you, you read about in, in other places in Scripture, I, I don't think he's talking about the book of, of eternal salvation, but he's just talking about the book of the living. That, that, that's, that's a concept that's found in other places in the Old Testament. It's really just a, a biblical metaphor for our lives, that, that the Lord has written a book with all our days of our lives. And so to be blotted out is simply just saying, kill me. Just let me die. So Moses is asking God to take his life as a substitute for the lives of the people. If you think about it, he, he's trying to atone for sins by means 
of a penal substitute. I'm going to take their penalty in their place. Penal substitution. But God says, no thanks. No thanks, Moses. And he rejects his offer. Not because it would be inappropriate for a substitute to bear the guilt of many and to experience their penalty on behalf of, uh, and to experience penalty on behalf of others. It's not because that's a bad thing. According to God, there's nothing cruel or unjust about doing that. In fact, that's at the very heart of the gospel. That's something that all of us need someone to do for us. But God rejects Moses' offer because Moses is not worthy to be that substitute. He has his own sins. He has his own issues that need atonement for. So atonement for their sins, you realize, was not made on that day. God goes on to say that he will visit their sins upon them. And then in verse 35, the chapter ends by God sending a plague, likely taking more lives. It just kind of ends like that. And so this chapter, it concludes with a low point. I mean, it began with a shock, and it ends just as shockingly. God didn't allow their sins to be atoned for. But remember, even as we try to learn from these Israelites and their example, remember we said we're going to always have to read this story in light of the larger story of Scripture because even though Moses was rejected, another prophet like him came in the fullness of time and he served as that worthy substitute. Jesus offered to be blotted out in our place and this time God accepted He died for sinners. He made atonement for their sin. And friends, if you personally trust in Jesus as your substitute, then your sins can be forgiven. You will then be pardoned. You will be restored at one with God. You have to trust in Jesus. You have to turn to him and tell him, I believe that you are my substitute that you are my mediator, that you took my place. You tell them that, and you will be at one with God. So even though though we can appropriately draw lessons from Exodus 32, in another sense, friends, this chapter is no longer applicable for those who are in Christ. Because God is not angry with his children. You read this, and it might cause you to fear that, wow, how could God get so angry and have so much wrath against his people? But you have to, you have to re- read it as an episode in the Old Testament, and you have to realize that for the New Testament people of God, God's children, he is not angry with you. His wrath does not burn against the church Not because we're perfect, and not because he has softened up and changed his attitude towards sin and idolatry. No, it's because the mediator that Moses wanted to be, but simply couldn't be, no matter how good of his intentions, that mediator now has come. And that's really the existential question that all of us have to face. The question is, when I die, do I want to face a holy God? on my own merits, 
or do I want a mediator by my side? One who pleads for me, one who has offered his life in my place. What is your relationship with Jesus? He is a worthy substitute, but is he yours? Father, I pray that you will give faith for every single one of us to know with great assurance and confidence that Jesus is our substitute, that he is our Savior and Lord. Lord, may we leave this place filled with that joy and confidence, knowing that your divine wrath against our sin has been placated. It has been appeased. It has been propitiated through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we leave this place experiencing your love, knowing that you are for us, for we are in Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.